Amen. Well, thank you guys for being here at Mission Church. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors along with Pastor Justin. And uh, we call this place, these people, our church family. And we take that very, very seriously. And so thank you for gathering with us here on this real public launch here at Briarwood Elementary. And so we're excited about what God has called us to do. And we are excited about the possibilities of others joining with us in this mission to worship Jesus to make disciples, and to multiply. Well, you've come on a good day if today is your first time ever gathering with us in one of our Bible studies or one of our other gatherings that we've had as we start a brand new series here at Mission through the letter from Paul uh, to several different groups of people. Excuse me, letter from Peter. Um, to several different groups of Peter of people. So we're going to look through 1 Peter, uh, be kind of beginning through chapter 1 and working through about five verses. And we're calling this sermon series, as we kind of work line by line, uh, we're calling this sermon series, Saturate the Gospel Everywhere. Now when you think about the word saturate, to, to saturate something means that it's physically, um, thoroughly soaked uh, with water, that, that no more can be absorbed. I mean, that's what we want the Holy Spirit to do within all avenues, all veins, every bit of time of our existence that he gives us, is that he would, would literally saturate our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a gospel-centered church, this is a place where, in a people where we want to keep Jesus at the center of, of every avenue. Because I don't know about you, I'm really cool with Jesus uh, saturating certain aspects of my life until we talk about this topic or that topic or this issue in my life or that issue. And then, man, I really want to push back against that. I mean, our hope and our prayer is as we are working through uh, this letter from First Peter, that we would begin to see the grace and the mercy of God uh, saturate our thinking, our hearts, our emotions, the way we work, the way we interact with authority, the way we, we interact in our marriages and our singleness, all of these aspects of our existence that we are praying that the Holy Spirit would lavish upon us until we can't absorb any more of it until we get to heaven. That's what we want to see Jesus do. We want to see Jesus absorb the streets on our city where I know that prostitutes work. We want to see Jesus absorb, you know, just saturate and bring into his kingdom the streets where, where kids are being often abused right here in Bowling Green or, or people that are living in dirt-floored rooms right here in Bowling Green. And simultaneously, man, we want to see everybody from across the tracks to Old Stone meet and know this Jesus. Now, we live in an interesting culture that is rapidly shifting, and Peter is writing to a group of people, a group of believers, where their culture is also simultaneously going absolutely crazy against Christians. In these areas that we're going to get to in just a moment, it's not that these Christians in these areas are being physically killed or martyred, but many of them are being ostracized or relationally divorced because they're willing to stand in Jesus and the gospel in a current of culture that is flooding against them. We must be reminded that the gospel 
must saturate these things as well. We must remember that the gospel must um, look and, and formulate every thought that we have, every vote that we cast, everything that we say, every interaction that we have. We want that to be centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I want you to know you are going to receive suffering and trials and difficulty on this earth, and yet the gospel continues to cause us to propel forward. Being a believer for these early Christians was a cultural death penalty. And I would conclude that in our day and time, not that I'm, a, I'm not a doomsday guy, I'm, I'm not um, in fear of someone coming in here today and, and killing us because we believe in Jesus, but I am talking about a, a cultural divide that is going to be difficult for us. And yet, we are going to be greatly encouraged today in the midst of these troubling times to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hope and pray by God's grace that this series will encourage you as believers, encourage you in your next step in your relationship with Jesus. That means if you're lost, that, that, that the gospel would saturate your heart, that Jesus would arrest your heart, that he would take you unto himself, that he would save you, redeem you, transform your life. If you're already a believer, that if suffering hasn't came or if trials haven't come, it's a matter of time they will. And in the darkest of moments, may you be encouraged through this series to be saturated in the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a Bible around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please uh, take that as a gift from us. But it says this, in 1 Peter chapter 1, this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in dispersion, in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of the blood. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So let's go back here to the very first verse here. We meet a man. His name is Peter. Peter is the author of this letter, and he's, he's writing it to this area in Asia. And this letter is believed that it would go on to one church, to another church, to another church, to another church. That's why he gives us this big, long list of places there. And we, we learn from this guy named Peter. It's important for us to ask this question, who is Peter, and why do I care what Peter says about my life? We learn about Peter in the Gospels first and foremost, and we learn that Peter was uh, probably uh, in his early 20s. We don't know for, for sure. It's believed that he was one of the older disciples eventually, but that Peter was a fisherman, and he was fishing one day with his brother, and Jesus comes walking by, and he looks at this fisherman, and he says, hey, hey Peter, I want you to follow after me, and if you follow after me, then I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So Peter 
the Bible tells us, drops his net and begins to follow after Jesus. And in doing so, we learn through the Gospels some really interesting stories about this man named Peter. And I can relate to Peter to some degree. Um, Peter is this guy that is quick to speak. You know, I can think of a guy in our culture right now who's getting in a lot of trouble for being quick to speak, Mr. Trump. And uh, it's been really interesting to meet this guy or to watch this guy on television and just to see the free-flowing thoughts that come from this interesting individual's mouth. And in the, the same way, we can see glimpses of that in this guy named Peter in the stories of the Gospels. He follows Jesus for three years, and he claims to Jesus, man, I will never leave you, Jesus. All right? I'll never forsake you, Jesus. Man, I, I will die for you, Jesus. Man, he says that over and over and over again. We get this picture of this boisterous, loud, kind of speaking his mind guy who is always telling Jesus, I will never leave you until the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where, where, where Judas betrays Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And what does Peter do? He runs. He flees. And in doing so, he goes into the culture, he goes into the crowd, and people begin to recognize this man named Peter, and they keep asking you, aren't you the one that follows after Jesus, and what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. So we see this ebb and flow, this erratic behavior of this person who claims to follow Jesus now, all of this denial happens until Jesus and Peter meet after the resurrection of Jesus. We see this beautiful scene on a beach, and, and, and Jesus ends up making breakfast for the guys, and, and he looks at Peter, and he commands Peter to follow after him and to feed his sheep, to pastor once Jesus is ascended. And so once the ascension of Jesus is taking place, once Jesus is resurrected, Peter is a totally different man. There is something about the power of the resurrection that changes people's lives. Believers are not just people who believe in that, that their God or that Jesus died. But what separates us is that we believe that Jesus is alive. And when Jesus is alive, he changes every aspect of our very existence. And so Peter goes from this guy who's boisterous and then running from Jesus and denying him within the crowds to the person that we see in the book of Acts who's standing up and going against the culture and saying, this is sin. You need to repent and you need to turn to Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God. He is our resurrected Lord. This is now Peter. And he spends the rest of his days, even to the point of Christian history, telling us that Peter would be crucified. But before they crucified him, going to the executioners and telling them that he was unworthy to die the same way that his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. And so he asked and pled with his, with his executioners that they would crucify him upside down. What's really interesting, if you know much about the Bible, we also have Paul, who writes most of the New Testament. You know, Paul is said to be a Hebrews of Hebrews. This is a, a guy who is well-educated, probably from a better family situation. And that contrast with another believer, this guy named Peter, who's, who's rough around the edges, all right? 
Paul has diplomas hanging on the wall. Peter's got like bass hanging on the wall, all right? He's got Billy Bass, that annoying fish that sings whenever you walk by it. I mean, these are the two polar opposite individuals that we see within Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we had these glimpses that everyone whom Jesus saves isn't the same. That, that he saves the, the guys that, you know, um, drive big trucks. And he saves guys that drive Lamborghinis. All right? He, he saves people who listen to, to classical music. And he, and he saves people who listen to, like, you know, Waylon Jennings. All right? And he saves everybody in between there. And he, he uses a diversity of people to do what? To spread this gospel, to saturate this gospel, this truth, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus is true, and it must be spread everywhere. Everywhere. So we keep reading in there, and we see these terms. We see this term that Peter is writing to these group of people, but he first calls them elect exiles elect exiles now i know for some of you i probably just said a cuss word when i use the term elect but that's what the bible says he calls them elect exiles so what does he mean by that this term is used about 22 times in the new testament and it is always in reference to god choosing, electing a group of people whom he calls his sons and his daughters. As we read earlier in the book of Ephesians, that the Bible tells us that he did this even before you and I were ever born, before the world was ever formed into his hands, before he ever sang light into existence, Genesis chapter 1, then we see this picture that God, if you are a child of his, chose you he elected you before you ever did anything right or before you ever did wrong he said this person is going to be my child now the thing is that has a tendency to freak some of us out a little bit to think about that but I want you to know, when, when Peter was writing with this, when Paul was writing about these terms in his letters, when Jesus even looked at his disciples and he said, don't, don't freak out here, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. In none of those moments do we have them freaking out over the terms chosen, election, predestination, or any of those things. And it's quite opposite of what we see happening. We see these people going, man, thank you, Jesus. This is a comforting term to people in great trial and tribulation of Jesus saying, hey, I've got you, and I've got this situation. You're my child, and if you're my child, you will forever be my kid. The next thing that he says here is the term exile. This is not a, a or excuse me, this is, has a terminology to mean that these are, are people living in a, in a temporary place that this is not their home, that this is where they live, this is where they dwell, this is where they work, but this is not necessarily their home. They're sojourners. Even some translations use the term aliens or chosen aliens or, or elect aliens. Now, what's interesting about this is that some of these people that Peter is writing to have probably lived in these cities their entire lives. And yet, what is the term that he uses? He calls those believers elect exiles. 
What is Peter trying to say here? He's trying to say something very important to those people, but I believe that he's also trying to say something very important to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter is saying that through the gospel, when you realize who Jesus is, when you realize the cross and the resurrection and what Jesus has done inside of your life, you quickly begin to see the world differently, to see your suffering differently, to see your trials differently. And in that, you begin to understand that God has placed me here for such a time as this. And yet, this is not my eternal home. I'm an alien here. I live in Bowling Green. I dwell in Bowling Green. I work in Bowling Green, but Bowling Green is not my eternal home. And because of that, we should be able to find great confidence and comfort and, and, and just a great love that, that we know and we can find strength and encouragement to continue to press on when we realize that there is something true and better coming. See, what, what makes Christians odd, what makes believers odd, is not the weird words that we use, not the Christian ease that we use. It, it, it's not that, that you got Bible verses kind of like woven together and hanging in your bathroom, all right? It, it, it's not the Christian t-shirts that you wear or the Christian music that you have. What makes Christians strange and, and weird and odd is that we don't listen to what the world has to say. We listen to what God has to say. And because of that, that transforms everything about us. Everything. Every bit of our lives. Every area of our lives. He was not saying in a physical sense. He was speaking to a very spiritual since I heard one commentator, he was writing about this, and he's like, you know, these two words, elect exiles, they're actually, um, uh, you know, kind of an oxymoron that literally, if you translate them, this is great, it, it means refugee millionaires. Get that picture. You as a believer, me as a follower of Jesus, you as a believer, we are refugees. This, this is not our home, and yet... We are the, the princesses, the, the princes, we are the royalty of God living on this earth. And one day, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to come back, and he's going to set all of this together. Heaven is a beautiful place with a beautiful people, and with, a more importantly, an amazing God sitting on the throne loving his peer, people. So when we keep going here, it says this in, in 1 Peter verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Again, we see another theological term here that there's been lots of talk about, debate about this term of foreknowledge. What, what is Peter trying to say here? What is ultimately Jesus and the Holy Spirit trying to say here when he says things according to the foreknowledge of God? This statement of foreknowledge is this. This word is, is, is not simply stating that God knows that something is going to happen. 
He's not saying that God looked down at the, the movie of your life and, and saw one day when you got on your knees and you bowed before the Lord and you chose him and then he went back before you were created and chose you. That's not what this passage is talking about. Throughout the scripture, we see this, pa- or this, this term, foreknowledge, uh, is, is actually the term in the original Greek that means to forecare, to for love. That means that, that God and, and who he is and is greatness looked down before we ever existed and for loved us, dirt and all, birthmarks and all, moles and all, blemishes and all, good and bad and all, that God in his great sovereign grace and his great love today, get this, be encouraged by this, for loved you. He foreknew you. That's why in Genesis we see the term that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. It's a caring It's a love that he is speaking about. According to God's redeeming love and care for you. He he says to these people, hey, you are living in these places. You are experiencing these trials, these tribulations. You know, you live on Ivy Farms or in Ashmore Park or or, uh, around um, Briarwood Elementary, that you live in that time for this existence in that home on that street. And none of it is a surprise to me. But it is all an extension of my great care and love for you. All of these things are because of Him. So when we see our brothers and sisters in ice being killed by ISIS, this is not new knowledge to Him. This did not surprise Him. And yet, even in the midst of that, He cares for those believers. He cares for those young ladies this week that lost their lives for believing in Jesus and would not give themselves to those terrorists. He cares for them. He loves them in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of great pain, in the midst of great hurt. He cares for them. And they needed that encouragement. They needed to hear those words. Have you ever been on the edge? I mean, have you ever in your life just felt like Like we see in movies all the time where people are contemplating taking their own lives and they step out of the window. And they're stepping on the ledge. And you know, they've got kind of two options here. They can can go back in or they can jump. And usually a friend will show up, a policeman, and, and what is that person trying to do? It's trying to encourage them, hey, you you don't want to do this. And have you ever been in such pain and such questioning, such wondering, man, where, God, where in this are you? You're on the edge. 
And it, it can be difficult to, to know, God, are you with us? Are you walking alongside of us? Are you in this journey with us? When you're having relationship issues in your marriage or an issue with your child or, you know, yesterday, I'm going to share this story with you. I'm trying to make it without ugly crying. This last few days have just been really difficult for me personally. Just wrestling through things, asking God, you know, you get down on your knees and you, maybe I'm the only one, you, you get down and you're just like, why God? You know, the, the big question of why is this going on? Like, why is this happening? There's so much questioning here. There's, there's pain here. There's heartbreak here. There's, there's lack of, um, of understanding here. And, and, you know, it's like, man, I want a burning bush. Like, burn up all my bushes, God, if you have to in my yard you know, make my car talk to me. We've got this, you know, yuppie little Yorkie at our house now. It's like, have the dog speak to me, like right on the wall. Like, I need to hear something from you, God. That was my day yesterday. And I get a phone call from somebody I used to pastor. And he's bawling his eyes out. And he's like, and I don't have anybody to talk to. He's like, but my life for the last two years has, has been a complete masquerade. He said, about two years ago, I caught my wife on social media having inappropriate conversations and flirty conversations with people. We addressed it, and for the sake of the family, try to keep it all together, and He's like, over the last month or so, I began to just really wonder what was going on. And he's like, and I, I caught my wife at our house with another man. And uh, I tried to stay away because I love my wife. And I went home just to try to put our kids to bed one night and as we're trying to weed through what's, what's going on here and what's happening. and We got into a confrontation because I took her phone and she, she punched me. And in trying to get away, um, we had an altercation. She called the cops. And I spent the last 24 hours in jail. He's like, man, I'm a goody-goody. I grew up a preacher's kid. I didn't hit her. I didn't touch her. Besides just trying to get away from her. But I had to spend the last 24 hours in jail, and that's never a place I ever want to visit again. He's like, man, I've got two little boys. I've got a, 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 an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, and I love this woman, her family, they are my family. I'm as much their son as I am anything. I don't want to lose her. I don't want to lose my boys. I don't want to, to, to lose this family of mine. Perspective has a way of changing things. What you're going through has a way of changing things. You know, I told Laura last night when I was telling her this, and I, I was just 
crying with him on the phone and praying for him. And I was like, God, you know, you're there. And I told him, I was like, man, I want you to know, no matter how difficult this is right now, you need to know that Jesus is there. Do you have all the answers? Do you know what's going to happen later on today or tomorrow or, 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 or the court date that's down the road? I mean, he can have no contact with his, with his wife for a month. I want you to know that Jesus is there. The gospel is there. The gospel is even saturating and can saturate even this great hurt. Because I believe that to be true. Even when I can't grasp it. You know, I think about Adam and he sent a message to us yesterday and one of his co-workers went missing. He went canoeing by himself yesterday. He's married, he got two kids. They can't find his body on the Green River right up the road. I think about that family today. I think about their loss. I think about two kids growing up without their dads. Dad. And, and, and in doing that, we, we must be reminded, we must be encouraged. Adam, today, be encouraged, brother. Know that even Jesus somehow is in the, the midst of that darkest of night pain that he is there that his grace where the light is there can be no darkness and a lot of times he's simply just calling us in the midst of our darkness to open up our eyes to recognize that he has been there all the while why because we have been sprinkled with the blood of jesus as the passage tells us here Peter is speaking to a lot of Jewish believers, people who know the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament illustration, an illusion that was foretelling and foreshadowing of the one and true Messiah. We see in the Old Testament a sprinkling of blood on, on an individual would sometimes be a priestly thing that would set them apart. Um, we would often see, if you've you know, seen a lot of uh, movies or uh, you know, read the Bible very much, you see in the Old Testament that there was the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant inside of the Holy of the Holies, right? And so that was to be the covering of sin for the people. Sometimes when someone was healed of leprosy, they would take them before the priesthood and they would sprinkle them with blood as a sign of significance that they have been clean, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And yet when we get to Peter here, what does he say? He says, for the sprinkling of or with his blood. See, believers, brothers and sisters, you need to find great hope today in your salvation because past, present, and future, if you are a believer in Jesus, has all been covered by the ultimate eternal Lamb of God, and his name is Jesus. When Jesus died upon the cross, he absorbed everything, everything within your life. All of the sin within your life has been absorbed by the cross of Jesus. Everything, both your obedience. Did you know if you kind of go to bed at night and you go, well, I was a pretty good guy today. That's only because of Jesus. 
It is only because you've been covered in the blood of Jesus that you are able to do anything right and holy, even in your own eyes, because you understand that is only and through Jesus. But you need to know this as well. Jesus' blood covers disobedience too. The grace and mercy of God. When, when Jesus died upon the cross, he absorbed the full wrath of God that you and I both deserve. Jesus and his cross can handle when my faith is unwavering. And he can handle it when my faith is struggling. He can, he can handle my devotion, but he can handle my doubts as well. This is the encouragement of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, man, if you are truly saved, you are always saved, not because of something that you have done or that I have done, but only because of the person and work of Jesus. Why? Because he has perfect faith. He has perfect obedience. That's why God sends him. Aren't you glad that God didn't send you to die upon the cross? Because my sacrifice wouldn't have been good enough to appease him for my own sin, let alone yours. And yet Jesus, in his perfection, see, my faith, trust, can become unstable. But Jesus' faith and trust in God is always perfect. Let's look here. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the what? The resurrection of Jesus. See, Peter himself is even writing these things. He's like, you're going through trials, you're going through tribulations, you're going through suffering, you're, you're struggling, you're going against the current, you're the elect exiles from the four care, the four love of God. And what, is, what does Peter automatically do? He, he, busts his, he busts out into praise choruses here. Blessed. My great-grandmother used to say, bless God, all the time. All right? After every, everything good that would happen, or even if something was bad, she'd always say, bless God. And for years, I had no idea. How do you do that? I mean, this is the question I would ask. And then I learned that the word bless there actually means the word praise. Praise God. So because of the sprinkling and the covering of his blood in the life, because he has so chosen me to, to live, to exist, to be his very on, own, then we, like Peter, can learn to praise in the most difficult of moments. And what does he do? He gives us a living hope. We're caused us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the mercy of God. You know, you and I, we don't deserve mercy. We live in a fallen world. I'm fallen. You are fallen. We are fallen. We deserve death. We deserve hell. But yet, what do we get? We get God. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Do you know how illogical that sounds? This is what we deserve. What do we get in the end, courtesy of Jesus? We get God. We get the gospel. We get the truth. This is the gospel of our lives. Religion says this. I am good. 
or even I'm pretty good, or I'm, I'm better than that person. That's what I mostly say, right? I'm, I'm not as bad as them, so I'm, I'm pretty good. So, in turn, what God owes me. That's what religion says. The gospel declares, brothers and sisters, I am not good. I am wretched. And yet, God shows me mercy. And what do I do in return? I owe him my life. I owe him my life. I owe him every fiber, every corridor of my heart, every part that I'm okay with him being in, and every part that I'm not okay with him being in. This is a beautiful truth. This living hope isn't a self-help. It's not a Christian bookstore kind of seven ways to, to be happy in the Holy Ghost, all right? That's not what this is. The truth of the gospel, this living hope, isn't in some philosophical term or some great coping mechanism. The, the truth of this living hope is that it has flesh and bones, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is not dead. You get that? He is not dead. Jesus is alive. And so even in the midst of our great sorrow and pain, we need to learn to stop acting like Jesus is dead too. Because he's not. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then there is hope, a living hope. Do you know that your best days as a believer are ahead of you? They're ahead of you, courtesy of Jesus as we continue in this earth the way that it is rest right now is that we should be becoming more and more like Jesus. But I want you to know, what, what is heaven going to be like? We get some glimpses here when we read 1 Peter 4. It says, To the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, our, our living hope, ladies and gentlemen, cannot be in earthly pleasures. Our living hope is not the prosperity gospel. Our living hope is not uh, obtaining something more on this earth. Our living hope is obtaining something that God has in store for us in the heavenly realms. And what does he say from this? He gives us a picture of it. Man, write this down today. He tells us in this passage that this gift, this inheritance is imperishable. What does that mean? It means that, that it's not subject to decay, unable to be worn out with the passage of time. That, that gift of grace, the gift of mercy, the, the, the lavishness of God's blood covering your life, that it is imperishable. It's hard for us to get heaven and that glory and that salvation is imperishable because everything that we have on this earth eventually falls apart, right? Man, may we get a glimpse to begin to realize that salvation is imperishable. 
What else does it say? It tells us there that it's undefiled. What does that mean? It means that it's unstained by sin. Our internal inheritance is unstained by sin. Aren't you going to be glad to get to heaven and God to finally remove all the things that everyone else is doing that gets on your nerves? I am. Right? I can't wait for Jesus to clean you up. All right? Because you get on my nerves. And I get on myself's nerves. And I get on my wife. My wife can't wait to be just my brother in Jesus, the perfected version of that brother, right? I can't wait for Jesus to get a hold of my kids and to remove all the ways that they act like their mama, all right? I mean, that's going to be a a glory. Heaven is going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing and awesome. Guys, don't hope in the things of this earth. Don't, don't hope in the, the things that you have on this earth. Because they're all defiled. Yet one day in glory, and this salvation that he is speaking of here, and the inheritance that we are going to be given, is undefiled. The, the next thing, the third thing is it's unfading. It's unfading. Earthly wealth earthly appearance man it doesn't matter how many times you go to the doctor and they inject you with like you know botox and stretch your face all right the scripture even tells us right that beauty is fading you know some of you have known me for a really long time and and i understand that people have dream cars and some people's dream cars are like dodge vipers and like corvettes you know what mine is souped up jacked up extended XL Jeep Wrangler, black wheels, black rims. I thought about this. Black paint, black windows, black hard top. All right? Brand spanking new. I want to drive it off the lot and it have one mile. And that's the mile I put on it. But you know what? I know myself. Give that Jeep, if I was to ever get it, a year and I would look like an episode of Hoarders. <laughs> like it would be, I would, I would clean it for like the first year, and then you'd be like, hey, what, can I ride with you? And you'd be like moving coffee cups and like the fast food to try to squeeze in, and I'd just apologize. I'm sorry, here's some hand sanitizer. All right? I know that's what would happen, right? Because it, it would slowly fade. It would like a child at Christmas who gets a new toy. We love this toy. Can't wait. I think my nephew Maddox, I can't wait to get the PlayStation 50 or whatever it is now, you know, virtual reality in my bedroom sort of thing. And now we're like, he never plays it. But he couldn't wait to get it. Why? Because it fades. Your appreciation of it fades. The value at which you hold it fades. That is not the gospel The gospel never fades. It is never going to grow weary. But in all of eternity, this inheritance that we're going to get is going to be revealed day after day after day. I don't know if we'll sleep, but every moment, every second within heaven, you will never be bored. Can I get an amen? Because I get bored really easy. You will never get bored. You will love every song that is sang, every meal that you eat. We'll still never be able to wrap our minds around lions hanging out with lambs. 
lambs, and if there's going to be dinosaurs there, I have no idea. But all of these things will reveal the majesty of God, and it will never fade. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of this inheritance. That's the beauty of what God is doing in every person's life whom he has saved. Some of you remember this song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go, what? Strangely dim compared to what? In the light of his glory and grace. May that song not just be lyrics that we sing or a tune that we know, but may it be the desire of our hearts that when, when I look at this Jeep XL, black on black on black on black, Wrangler, compared that to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Dim. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 8 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Man, I want to live like that. Man, I want to see the world like that. That if, man, if as a pastor, if I pastor a mega church, or if I pastor this group of people for the rest of my life, or if you all leave, at the end of the day, when I compare pastoring, my home, my current ride that I drive, whatever those things, when I compare those things to the gospel, this is rubbish. Now, the Greek term is a lot more offensive than I'm going to tell you right I can't use the word, but it means excrement. And Paul says this, or excuse Paul says that in Philippians. He says, man, when I compare all of these earthly possessions to the gospel, all things on this list, they're rubbish. They're junk. They're junk. So brothers and sisters, stand firm in the gospel. Know that it is imperishable, that it's undefiled, that it's unfading, that whatever you gain, if you lose Jesus, you have lost it all. But if you have Jesus, you have it all. So you are refugee millionaires living in a crazy society. Just watch the news. A crazy culture, and yet we are reminded to stay true in the gospel. Why? Because the fourth thing that he tells us there is that we are kept in heaven for us. Kept in, in the Greek form indicates a completed past activity. This is something that God has done before, way before the foundations of the earth, and his actions then are continuing on today and will forever keep. You are stored up. You are God's gift to himself through Jesus. This inheritance has been stored up. It has been reserved for believers in heaven. Uh, one of my, the guy that was in that video in closing, his name's Jeff Vanderstelt, and uh, he's a great pastor, love his writings and all sorts of things, and he's in Seattle where Frank and Teresa just got back from jealous. And um, he's there, and I heard him speaking about this. And you guys remember a few years ago, um, there was this song. I probably sang it thousands of times when I was a worship leader. We used to sing it all the time. But I heard him talking about this song recently, and it made so much sense here. And I want you to get this today. But we used to sing this song called Jesus Lover My Soul. Do you remember this? Um, if you've grown up in church, if you haven't, probably 
you're in good company, all right? So Jesus, lover of my soul, and then the next line, I think, um, Jesus, I will never let you go, right? How many of you guys have ever sang that song? Let's go ahead, be Pentecostal for a moment. You can raise your hand, it's all right. All right, so, man, I used to sing that song. Laura and I would go to my parents' church, and we'd sing that song, Jesus, love my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. It's a lie. It's a lie. Or at least it is for me. You know why? Because I constantly finding myself wanting to let go of the truth of the gospel. Wanting to, to let go of who Jesus is. Wanting to, to, to doubt it, to lack in faith in it. And yet, what is the truth of the gospel? That how have we been kept? Not because I'm holding on to Jesus, but to know that Jesus is holding on to us. And he goes on there in 1 Peter um, verse 5 to say that it is also guarded. What does that mean? That it's kept safe, that it's carefully watched. And this is often used, this term there in the original Greek there for guarded is, is a military context that means this. It's the contest, uh, context that means that, that it is both kept um, from escaping, but also protected from attack. And what Jesus has done inside of you, if you truly are a believer, if Jesus truly has changed your life today, I want you to find great hope, great encouragement in knowing that it is secure, that it is guarded by the person and work of Jesus. And I like that. It's, you, it's guarded from you being able to escape it. And it's also guarded from an eternal attack. It can never be removed from you because of Jesus. Because of what He says. We have much good news here. There's much truth here. There's much to rejoice in God about here. There's much to be reminded about this morning. And maybe you're on the, the mountaintop, maybe you're in the valley, maybe you're somewhere in between, but either way, there's much goodness and grace to be reminded of here that, that no matter what it is, if, if we're going to go through these other topics that we're going to talk about through First Peter, what does Peter want us to do? What does the Holy Spirit want us to do? What do I want to do as one of your pastors? I want you to know that all starts with you as an individual being saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Hell awaits you. You deserve it, just like me. But courtesy of Jesus, may you turn from your life of sin. May you turn in faith. May you believe with all of your existence. May the gospel saturate all of your life. May you turn and may you follow after Jesus. Man, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, our heartbeat today is that we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to explain to you more about the gospel and the sacrifice that, that Jesus took on behalf of your sin. And we would love to speak to you about what it means to follow after Jesus or how that you can be, um, become more involved in, in a passionate relationship with a church and also, more importantly, with Jesus. But also, if you're a believer that's here today and you find yourself discouraged, May you read this passage. May you read it slow. May you read it often. And may you be reminded what God has decided, what God has placed His seal 
upon will never perish, will never fade, but will continue forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And like the book of Revelation, amen. Amen. Let's pray.